presenting sponsors of the Elevate podcast are the Expert Institute, Hype Legal, and Smart Advocate. The Expert Institute is the place that all top trial lawyers need to go to find the best experts to work on and to help you present your case. Expert Institute streamlines that process by providing staff who will go out, do an extensive search for the right expert, line up multiple candidates with their CVs, their past testifying history, well-vetted, who have a particular interest, curiosity, and expertise in the specialization that you need for the case, and will coordinate the meetings with all of those folks so that all you have to do is tell them what you're looking for and then get on the Zoom or get on the phone and talk to the expert candidates and select the best one for your case. It's a great process. It saves me and my staff a ton of time. And most importantly, the net result is we find better experts than we would have found without their assistance. And that makes a huge difference in the bottom line for our cases. If you're interested in speaking with them, go to theexpertinstitute.com and check them out today. Our show is also sponsored by Smart Advocate. Smart Advocate is a full practice management software system for your firm. It allows you to manage all of your cases, whether you have a complex practice with hundreds or thousands of clients and cases, or just a few cases with lots of documents or anything in between. It's a robust, customizable solution. It's cost-effective, and it's worked great in our practice. I think I mentioned on an earlier show, my paralegal thanked me for choosing that product. And when the paralegal thanks you for something, uh, it really means a lot because they're the ones who interface with that on a daily basis. And Hype Legal, our friends Micah and Tyler, who were at a firm called High Impact, where they helped to build out that successful trial animation company over a long period of time, getting to know the needs, uh, particular idiosyncrasies, needs of trial lawyers, what we need to succeed, how our practices work. And they took all of that experience and their expertise with aesthetics and graphics and digital marketing and started their own firm called Hype Legal where they now offer that service on a niche basis to some of the top trial law firms in the country. You should check them out at hypelegal.com. This is the Elevate Podcast, where trial lawyers learn, share, and grow. Let's talk about how we can elevate our trial practices, law firms, and lives. And now, here are your hosts, coming to you from coast to coast, trial lawyers, Ben Gideon and Rahul Ravi Pudi. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm Ben Gideon. My co-host Rahul is not with us today because he's trying a case in Malibu and um, we're hoping he gets a great result and could tell us about that during our next show. We're really excited today to invite Ed Capozzi to the show. Um, Ed is a trial lawyer in New Jersey. He's actually the current chair of the New Jersey Association of Trial Lawyers. He's tried many, many, many cases over the years. And I first got to know about Ed from a book he wrote, which I have here in front of me called The Domino Theory. And I, I purchased this book after trying multiple cases to juries where during the deliberations the jury sent notes to the judge 
asking the judge to redefine proximate cause, uh, which after reading Ed's book, I, I see occurred uh, in many of his cases and probably in many uh, trial lawyers' cases because proximate cause tends to be one of the most difficult concepts for juries to, to grasp. So we'll definitely get into that book. It's a great book and provides really uh, practical uh, advice on how to teach the jury uh, what that what that concept means so that you can win your case. Uh, but before we get into that, Ed, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what brought you to this uh, business of trying cases to juries? Thanks, Ben. Well, I'm from Long Island. I, was, I grew up in Long Island and um, never wanted to be a lawyer. Was really into sports, then got into music, became a musician, and that's pretty much what I did until I was about 34 years old. So I played music, you know, all around the world, grunge music. I was in a band called the Poets for many years. What 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 did you play? I was a guitarist, singer, lead singer. Can you give us some examples of the kind of bands, your formative bands, or what you like to play? Well, I liked well. I was really into like Led Zeppelin and um, some of the classic rock bands but then in the early 90s got into a lot of the grunge bands nirvana pearl jam you know uh alice in chains things like that uh always liked black sabbath it was always one of my favorite bands um so that's really what i had planned to do you know i, I was really uh pretty successful at it for a while but it, it gets old the touring gets old and uh i was getting a little older and i was kind of worry like you know oh my god like what am i going to do with my life my brother, Lou, is a lawyer and uh, was Thanksgiving around uh, two th uh, 1999. And he said, why don't you go to law school? Why don't you go to law school? So uh, I'm like, I'm not going to law school. But eventually, uh, I think it was like a week later, I called him. I said, I'm going to law school. The only problem is I had to finish my undergrad first. So I uh, had only scraped together like basically about... 60 credits of undergrad. So I had to go to undergrad. So I moved to Pennsylvania, went to Penn State, got my uh, bachelor's. And at that point, I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to teach history and uh, went on my first job interview and saw what the salary was. And I'm like, I'm not going to do this. And I uh, went to law school and uh, actually did pretty well in law school because I was kind of focused, um, wanted to have a secure job. But had no idea that there was a plaintiff's bar and a defense bar and like what the, what you could actually do with this uh, stuff. So that's where the music comes in, because I was uh, in a band for many years and we had a very theatrical stage show. And um, I tried to turn the courtroom into that. So I started to uh, bring in. I, to draw, I, I've always been an artist. I've always been drawing since I was I think I was four years old. I painted my first picture. So that comes in really handy because I'm basically a medical illustrator live in court. So I can illustrate any body part, any accident scene. So that's what I started to do. I started to incorporate that stuff into my uh, presentation in court. And I kind of treated it as if I was doing a concert or a show. And, uh, and that's how it started. And then, um, you know, I was kind of lucky in a way because I, I, I joined firms. I, the first firm I joined was a really good firm. And they taught me how to be a lawyer, how to do the, how to, you know, answer interrogatories, like very precise and make the, the, the uh, you know, images, everything, create really nice rock packages, things like that. So I kind of took it to the next step. I left that firm 
and came to New Jersey. That was in Philadelphia. Came to New Jersey because I have an older son at the time. He's actually a lawyer in my office right now, but at the time he was in high school. And uh, I wanted to see his senior year of sports because he was a really good athlete. So I moved to Fort Lee, New Jersey. And I, and the main reason I moved there was when I went on all these interviews, I wanted to, I didn't know anything about New Jersey at the time. I said, I want the town that's closest to Yankee Stadium. And it was literally right on the other side of the George Washington Bridge. And I could literally see Yankee Stadium from my apartment. You know, could see the lights glowing. And I took a job with a very small firm. And it was my first day of work. And they said, you want to try this case? And I said, yeah, I'll try it. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. I think it kind of helped me because I didn't have anybody to kind of cookie cutter me into being a specific type of lawyer. I kind of went with it and uh, ended up winning that case. And then they said, you're trying every case from now on. And that's what I did. And I just, you know, it's, we I was trying one every other week. My first year, I think I tried 15, 16 cases. And then I continued to try at least that many for the next 10 years and um, just developed different things over the years. Uh, to, the cases I lost back then, I don't think I would lose now just because I've kind of tweaked it and didn't know really kind of what I was doing back then. I was just kind of winging it. But, uh, you know, got reversed a few times by the appellate division because I thought I could do certain things a certain way. Everybody was saying, oh, you can't do that. You can't do that. I'm like, well, why not? And I would do it. And then the case would get reversed. And then I'd win it again. I'd go back and I'd win it again anyway. So, you know, that's kind of how I, I started out. And, and just as an aside, as a Red Sox fan, I, I'm really sorry about that one <laughs> game. Um, you know, wild card uh, <laughs> loss that the Yankees endured. I I feel for you. It wasn't even, a, you know, what, what upset me more than anything, it wasn't even a game. You know, you guys kind of blew us out. I thought, you know, I, I wouldn't mind losing if the game, you know, was in the ninth inning and it was close, but that was kind of a blowout, so it kind of sucked, but... Yeah, it was interesting because the right before that, the Red Sox-Yankees had that three-game series that the Yankees uh, swept the Red Sox. So it's just that's how baseball is. It's it's fickle like that. So it's interesting because I, I've always thought most trial lawyers secretly want to be rock stars, uh, but they couldn't. They didn't have any musical talent, so they ended up uh, finding a way to um, be the center of attention in a courtroom. You actually were a rock star before uh, be going into the courtroom. Do, do you think that that, that background kind of gave you a unique leg up once you started trying cases? Absolutely. And, and a lot of people always say, well, how do you go from being a musician to being a lawyer? And I was reading the Johnny Cochran autobiography, and uh, he said the best lawyer he ever knew was a, a former musician. Because that, that guy had a, a rapport with the jury that he had never seen. I think that's spot on. You know, I've performed in front of, you know, almost a million people probably in my career. And, uh, you know, going into a courtroom, I'm very comfortable. The people on the jury are people kind of like me, a blue collar type guy. Um, you know, not only, you know, was I a musician, but I used to be a sanitation worker, a con, you know, a, a landscaper. I was a bartender. I was a tile setter. You know, I've done every dirty job under the sun. And I think, um, you know, I talk to the jury like I'm talking to my friends, kind of keep it real low key down to earth. And uh, and then again, you know, that's why the domino theory is so successful. You know, you, you have a, people coming into court. They don't know anything about the law. And for the most part, they don't know anything about injuries, you know, spinal injuries or whatever type of injuries they are. So you got to teach them medicine and the law in a very short period of time. So you have to kind of dumb it down. You have to, you know, I, I, I pretend they're kindergartners. I really try to make it very basic. And uh, 
And that's why once I did this for the first time, um, I got a verdict in 20 minutes. I thought I lost. And they had, you know, gone right to the money because uh, I guess the explanation was simple enough. Whereas the other, you know, 50 trials I did before that, no matter how much time I spent on proximate cause, they continued to ask, you know, can you redefine proximate cause? So, so I've, I've read your book and I, I understand what the domino theory is. For our listeners who haven't yet had a chance to, to read the book, can you just give us a, a brief overview of what, what is the domino theory and how does it work uh, in trial? And what, what, is the, what is the purpose of it? Is it just to teach proximate cause or does it incorporate other elements of what you're doing in courtroom? Well, what I do is uh, what, what the domino theory is is basically breaking down proximate cause to its you know to its bare minimum. Um, and how this occurred was I had like I said I had tried a lot of cases and it was probably my I don't know thirtieth or fortieth trial when the jury asked again and I had spent a lot of time on it in that closing and I said how could they not know what this is? So I opened the, the proximate cause charge and I read it. And this is the New Jersey charge, which is about four pages long, so convoluted. And then when I saw this one sentence, it said, a cause that sets in motion a continuous sequence of events. I said, wow, that sounds like dominoes. So after that verdict came back, you know, the first thing I did was go to this store called the Evidence Store. And I asked uh, Steve, the guy Steve who worked there, I want you to make me dominoes that are, you know, about the size of cereal boxes. I want to put the facts of the cases on them. And he did. He made me like he made me this custom set. You know, we made he weighted them to make sure they fell properly. And uh, and I had like a format, you know, it had basically degeneration and then the uh, collision, the negligence and all of this treatment that went along with the case. And a lot of the time in a, in a soft tissue case, it's similar. So I basically set up, made a, like a general set that could uh, work for, you know, any, almost any case. And there's actually a video. I watched it. I think it's on YouTube that where you demonstrate how you use those in your closing argument. How do listeners find that video? I, I can't recall what the... I just think if you Google Ed, Ed Capozzi Domino Theory YouTube, it, you'll, it'll come up. Um, it's, uh, you know, that was at a seminar I did. Um, you know, I, I've, I've so you're been, literally lining these dominoes up in front of the jury and each yeah. one is labeled with a different, uh, event and you, and kind of in chronological sequence so that you can show that the negligence causes the crash, which then causes the immediate medical and, and so on and so forth all the way to the present and then out even into the future for what yeah. the, um, has that seems in, incredibly, and then you knock them all over, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, what end. I do is, and I think it's the best part of the whole domino theory is because the first, the first, and remember when I first started this, and actually when I wrote the first book, the new book just came out, the second edition, which I don't know if you have that one or you have the older one. It looks like I have the older one. I well, the new, the one, new came, one came out about a month ago. Uh, it in, what happened was while I was writing this book. I had expanded the whole domino theory, not only to include the medical treatment, but to go into all of the future damages, medical bills, uh, lost income, things like that. All of the things that, you know, the loss of enjoyment of life, everything. So when I first started out using about 10 dominoes, I think my last trial, I used 40. Um, so how, how do you ensure that you're going to have enough space to line them all up and present them how you want? Do you bring your own 
uh, table and set it up because not all bars in front yeah. of the <laughs> jury are long enough for that, right? Well, the first thing I do when I walk into the courtroom is like, where, where, where the hell am I going to put these dominoes, you know, based on the layout of the courtroom? Some are really small, some are larger. Um, well, uh, kind of luckily, at least in New Jersey, and I try cases in a lot of other states, but in New Jersey, there's always a rail in front of the jury and it's curved and it, they work perfectly. I could fit about 40 of them on there. Huh. I start way on the left. And I just and they don't fall over by mistake. They're weighted never. properly. I mean, that would be something I think some I, people might worry about. Yeah, I, well, luckily I've never, I never, it's never happened to me. Um, but you know, we get some really. I get emails all the time about people who are using them, and uh, they tell me funny stories how you know the dominoes will fall into the jury pool, like on top of the jurors in the jury box, and they're laughing and they hand them back, and there's like a little rapport going on there. I've had judges. Uh, when they're defining proximate cause, because in New Jersey, they give the jury charge after your close. Some states, they give it before your close. But in this particular case, they gave it after he closed. And the judge is reading proximate cause. And he says, you know, kind of like the dominoes. And he actually gave me credit <laughs> for uh, part of the jury charge, which is, always doesn't hurt. But, you know, the key to it is it makes it really simple because the jury can see that. You know, they can see the case in front of them. And like I said, I think the best part is when you put degeneration first, because everybody has pre-existing degenerative disc disease or whatever body part we're talking about, typically in a soft injury case, or if they have prior accidents or prior MRIs, sometimes now I put about three or four or five uh, dominoes before the negligence. But if you take away negligence and collision, for example, in an auto case, and you tip over the first domino, they fall and nothing else happens. Then I remove them and just put the collision and negligence back, hit the negligence, and they all go. Um, so, you know, it's been very helpful at least getting past that proximate cause charge and not having a jury deliberate for a long period of time just based on that kind of simplifies things. Yeah, can we go back to the, the proximate cause problem? Um, in, in your book, you actually um, lay out the the jury instruction that the New Jersey courts give on proximate cause, which I'm not going to read it because it's very long um, and it goes on for several paragraphs, but, and I've, I've had this uh, feeling every time I hear the proximate cause instruction it, that no ordinary person could understand what the heck that means. And that, um, I don't. I, I. It's true of jury instructions in, in general. Courts seem to write them intentionally to confuse people. And when we as plaintiffs try to suggest plain language versions of them, of course, the defense objects because they like them confusing and difficult to understand. But you, you do wonder why, since the domino concept is so simple and it does seem to capture this idea of. A, a, sequ a continuous sequence of events from an initial ish event to ultimate harm, why the court simply can't explain that proximate cause is like a series of dominoes where uh, the negligence is the first domino. And it, if you find that it leads to the last you know, event, then that would be proximate cause. You would think that it would be easier, but most jury charges, even laws, if you try to read a statute, it's so confusing. Um, that's why you got to, that's what law school's for, kind of teaches you how to get into that, uh, into the, into the muck and mire there. Um, so can you maybe give us a, a couple, some examples of trials 
where you've used this, uh, just some practical illustrations of how it works so the listeners can understand it. Yeah, sure. So like I was explaining before, if you just take a simple motor vehicle accident, rear end hit, typically the defense will stipulate the liability. Yeah, it was our fault, but we didn't cause all these injuries. So, and they'll, and the defense is always that the person had a pre-existing condition, whether you're 15 years old or 90 years old, everything in between, that's typically the defense. Um, you know, it's a strange strain. It's not a herniated disc. So basically what you, what I do is during the trial I, and in my opening statement, even though I don't use the dominoes, I create a timeline showing the person's life prior to the accident. There's very little or no activity on the timeline. Then the accident happens and all of the treatment, you know, the accident happens. You're in an ambulance. You're at the emergency room. You got to follow up with your primary care physician. You go to a chiropractor. You go to a pain management doctor. You get injections. And it's very crowded on the right side of the timeline. So, you know, and I explained to the jury prior to this accident, never had any pain in their neck, never went to a doctor, never filed a lawsuit, never had an accident. This happens. And, you know, what probably happened here? You know, did the accident cause the injuries or the negligence cause this accident and the injury? So it's pretty, just that visual alone, I think, is pretty helpful. Another thing that's very important is the preponderance of the evidence. You know, we only have to prove the case by more likely than not standard as opposed to beyond a reasonable doubt. And I use that also. Uh, I don't know if you've gotten to the end of the book where you're using mathematics. That that has been also very effective. I basically do the whole deliberation for the jury in my closing. I teach them about the preponderance of the evidence, why. You know, if the, if the defense doctor is claiming a third of the uninjured population has bulges and herniations, then two thirds doesn't. So it's probably twice as likely they never had this injury before. And I use that 67% that the defense doctor proved the case for me. So I, I do that. But, you know, again, what, what you need to show is that that negligence, but for that person who's driving that car looking down, you know, at go runs through a stop sign or a red light and T-bones somebody, but for them looking down, but for that negligence, the accident never would have happened because they would have stopped at the stop sign and my client's car would have drove right past that intersection and they would have went on with their life. And that's the reason that we're here. But most importantly, I try to say a second before this accident happened, this accident happened at say 5.30 p.m. My client's on her way home to her house. She's worked all day. She's driving home. She's thinking about all the things she's going to do that night. She's going to go get home, make dinner for her kids, say hello to her husband, watch a movie, do all these things. The next thing, you know, one second before that accident, that's what her mindset is. Five seconds after that accident, she doesn't know where she is. And five minutes later, there's an ambulance there putting her on a gurney, taking her to the emergency room. So after she gets out of the emergency room, you know, they obviously they x-ray her for any fractures. There's no fractures. She wakes up the next day. She's in agonizing pain, goes to see her primary care physician, who then sends her to physical therapy, then to a pain management doctor, gets her MRI, does an EMG, does all these testing. Ultimately, the pain never stops, never ends. So she goes to see a neurosurgeon who ultimately does surgery on her. Are you saying that that accident didn't cause these things, these events and these injuries? Because one second prior to that collision, she had never, ever even considered a neurosurgical consult. The next thing you know, she's in surgery. So, I mean, obviously that's what occurred. It's so obvious that it amazes me that, you know, anyone could lose these cases because 
it's so obvious what occurred and you really have to make it obvious to the the jury. Um, You know, they bring in these defense whores, excuse my French, but that's what they are. Um, These doctors who, you know, examine, and you know, when I really dig into the dirt on these guys, I, I, I I subpoena all of their reports they've ever written. I have 12,000 reports from one doctor, never found anyone injured in 12,000 reports. Um, He's disagreed with, you know, I've, 130,000 doctors, you know, I mean, he's not even qualified to read an MRI. He's a, he's a general orthopedic surgeon. I have a neuroradiologist reading a film that says it's a herniated disc. And this guy is saying it's a bulging disc so he could claim it's degenerative. But, you know, I get a great question for these guys. I said, has a, has a neurosurgeon ever called you in the middle of the night and said, hey, can you read this film for me? And they're like, no. I said, yeah, of course not. Because nobody gives a crap what you have to say. And do you, in New Jersey, do you typically uh, do depositions of experts pre-trial? Yeah, now, I do. Most yep. people don't, but I do. Um, and it depends. You know, I've seen these guys. I've tried a lot of cases. I've handled a lot of cases. I see the same guys over and over and over again. So, you know, sometimes I, I depose them just for fun, just to, you know, harass them a little bit. But for the most part... If I never heard of them, I'll definitely depose them just so I can find out the background. But the ones that are, you know, the the real the players that are that are there all the time and that have been doing it for 20 years. You know, I have so much, so many transcripts on them, so many documents on them that I don't really need to depose them again. Um, but I, I feel when you do depose them and if and if I can expose them a little bit at that deposition will definitely help settle the case later on so for that reason alone i think everybody should depose the doctors especially if you never heard of them or you never you never dealt with them um and you what, spend- what is your style in the courtroom are you very uh, aggressive i i i've never been in a new jersey courtroom but just knowing new jersey folks in general i've had my impression would be that it's very it's very aggressive uh lawyering is that the way it is in new jersey well, some some lawyer. I, I mean, I definitely am. I'm probably the most aggressive attorney in the courtroom, but it's only because I'm passionate, and the, and I, I just cannot. You know, I have a a distaste. I hate insurance companies. I hate these defense doctors, and I hate most of the defense lawyers. But um, so I am. Uh, you know, as a former athlete very competitive you know, and I find a lot of the lawyers not only defense but plaintiffs to are former athletes so they're very competitive also it's almost like a you know boxing match you want to kill the guy but um I'm aggressive only because I don't start out aggressive I start out very calm and then I you know but I ask tough questions and I listen to what they say and I'm a more of a street smart kind of guy so when they lie to me I, I call them out on it you know, it's one of the things I, that's also in the book, you know, the Ten Commandments of cross-examination, how you never ask a question you don't know the answer to. I do it all the time. And the reason I do it is because I know there's no good answer. I don't care what they say. There's no way they're getting out of this. And if you really, you know, that's where my first law firm comes into play. My first law firm was on plaintiff's medical malpractice firm. So the, the lawyers there were really good. And they made me learn the medicine. And especially in this day and age, when you have all these internet, you know, sites you can go to to watch a surgery, learn about the body part, you know, really know it and understand to the point where you understand it. 
And I understand it. You know, I've learned to understand every case I have. You know, you have a different case about the heart, about the leg, about the femur, about the ankle, about the wrist. You you have to learn that body part and that surgery and that injury to the point where you can intelligently question a doctor on it. Because when, you know, they say things that just are not true and you can call them out on this stuff. And I do it all the time. Um, you know, they just say crazy things. And if you also on a very, another very important thing is I've, I always attempt to get all the reports that a doctor's written in his career, you know, and it could be in the thousands and thousands. And if you read them, you will see that they, you know, in one case, they say one thing and another case, they say another thing. They kind of tailor their testimony to fit that case, not knowing I'm going to get that, that report that might be 10 years old but it's definitely going to contradict what he says in this case. So you can find this stuff and you got to get it. I mean, when you try a case, no matter how big or how small, because some of the small ones can turn out to be pretty big. Um, you know, I've, that's kind of how I made a name for myself was taking these soft tissue cases that they're offering me $7,000 on and getting a million five jury verdict on it. Um, you know, a $4,000 offer getting a $440,000 verdict. So, you know, basically taking those little cases and making them big. And how you make them big is by bringing in a lot of doctors, bringing in a lot of exhibits and making it like a production and trying that case, whether how small, to the best of your ability. You know, doesn't that client deserve the best trial you can put on? And you lose, you know, you lose some once in a while. But I think overall, if you do that, you're much more likely to succeed and your losses will be less frequent. And uh, they'll pay for itself. So, you know, that tends to be, oh, why? Can, how can you justify expending this much money on this case? I'll say when I get a million-dollar verdict on it, that's what justifies it. Or, uh, you know, a six-figure verdict when they were offering me, you know, three grand or nothing. So, so uh, we're going to take a 30-second break. We'll be right back with more of Ed Capozzi. I want to take a quick break and just thank our sponsors again, Hype Legal, Smart Advocate, and Expert Institute. If you want more information about any of them or to find their website and contact information, you can go to our website at Elevate, E-L-A-W-V-A-T-E dot F-M and check out our sponsor page. So we're back with Ed Capozzi. Ed, uh, you were talking about you know, win some, you lose some, and you have to obviously accept the possibility that occasionally when you go into court, you you might lose. And I, I noted that the last chapter of your book was titled The Agony of Defeat, and you wrote a little bit about about the this idea of losing. And in fact, maybe it was somewhere else in the book you wrote about the the CC Sabathia principle that you <laughs> developed. But how have you kind of evolved in your w- ability to uh, come to terms with um, losing and to continue to get back into the arena and try cases after a difficult loss? Well, I think in that chapter, if I recall, I had, while I was writing the book and I had, I, I was, you know, um, the last chapter I was writing, I was, I was waiting for a jury verdict and I, I believe they deliberated five days, and uh, I lost that trial. I lost actually not on proximate cause on something else, but because um, I've never lost a trial on proximate cause since I've begun doing the domino theory, except one. I'll tell you that. Um, but uh, you know, look, you're going to lose cases. I mean, the, some of the cases I've lost are the best trials I've put on. I mean, 
I've literally, you know, I, and I thought, yeah, man, I beat the hell out of them every single day of that trial. I never thought I would lose, but you know, sometimes you got to step out of your lawyer's shoes and look at it objectively. And that's, I have trouble doing that. You know, I'm so passionate. I believe the people so bad. Sometimes I'm like, you know what? That was actually the right verdict, you know, after, after losing a case, for example, it was one I lost recently. It was a fall down. Somebody fell out a window basically in Atlantic city at a casino, um, in a bar. And, you know, I thought I, you know, I thought I had I'd done a great job. Every, all the lawyers that were with me said, you're going to win, you're going to win, you're going to win. And I lost. And, um, and I lost because at the end of the day, the guy fell out of the window because he was an idiot, not because, you know, <laughs> they did anything wrong, you know? So, you know, and I, then I said, you know what? The jury actually, I thought, I thought what they did was right. I thought, I, I, you know, I, believe, I, I thought it was the right thing. You know, it takes a long time to get out of that mindset where, oh, I got to win every single case. And I've been successful. I've won. I've gone four or five years without losing a trial. Then I've lost three in a row and, you know, all, everything in between. You know, I've, been, I've lost plenty of trials, not that many, but plenty. Um, and I thought some of, them I sh- some of the ones I won, I should have lost, but I won. And then some of the ones I lost, I should have won. Um, it's a, it's a difficult, uh, it's a difficult thing. But like I said, like the CC Sabathia analogy, you know, if you go out there every day, five day, every five days and you try a case, you know, just like him, he pitches great. He wins the game. He pitches poorly. He could win if the Yankees, you know, hit 10 home runs. And then there are games where he pitches great and he loses one, nothing. So, I mean, that's how you have to, you have to have that mindset that, look, this is what I do. This is my job. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to do the best I can. You're only as good as your client and your facts. I mean, I pulled a couple rabbits, you know, out of a hat, but most of the time you're going to lose those cases. You bring a terrible client in with a lot of priors and a real dirt bag, you're going to lose. If you have, uh, you know, the facts are not in, in your favor, you're going to lose. Um, but that's why you got to kind of pick and choose your your battles wisely. Like I'm much more picky now about my clients. You know, when I first started out, I wanted any client I could get. You know, obviously I'm trying to make a, a living. But as you, you get become more successful, you can kind of pick and choose those clients and reject a lot of these cases. Because I feel sorry for everybody. You know, I have people come in. Oh, I went to ten lawyers. They won't take my case. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to help this person, you know. And sometimes I've done that and become success and been successful. Other times, I always say, why did I take this case? I should have just rejected it, you know. Because you, the ones that you think are going to be a headache are a headache. They always become problematic. If the client's problematic. Oh no! I've got lawyers call me. Hey, can you take this case over? This client's a real jerk. I can't take him anymore. And I'm like, yes, send them over here. The next thing you know, I'm in the same boat with this person. I'm like, why did I take this case? So, you know, you got to be smart about what cases you get. But, you got, you know, if you think you're never going to lose a trial, either you're not trying the right cases or um, you're living in fantasy land or you haven't tried enough because you're going to lose, you know. You're going to lose, especially now. I mean, honestly, I, and it's becoming more apparent to me I mean, I have some really big trials coming up. And, you know, the, I picked, a, you know, in New Jersey, at least right now, the courts are still closed. They're, they're having some virtual trials and they're kind of reserving them for the smaller, like one defendant, one plaintiff cases. 
So because the only way we're ever going to settle a case in this day and age, because the insurance company is just sitting on the money right now, they're just sitting there waiting for the courts to open. So they're not settling anything for any re uh, reasonable amount of money, which infuriates me. I'm forcing the judge. I'm like, judge, I'll try this case virtually. I don't care. And he's like, yeah, well, I don't have a jury in this county. I said, I'll go to Alaska. I don't care where you send me. I want to, I want to try this case. Because the defense attorney was pissing me off because they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't make me a real offer. So I said, I get him in the courtroom. You're going to see the offer start rolling in. And exactly what happened. I picked the jury virtually. It's like the you know, Brady Bunch. You got all the jurors on the screen. And they were literally, in this note, I swear on my mother, this woman is cutting vegetables in the kitchen on a, on a cutting board. As the jury, you know, we're picking the jury. She's cutting vegetables. Everybody, you could see into everybody's living room, though. So I thought that was actually pretty cool. So not only do you see the person, hear about them, but you can actually see the things that are hanging on their walls and things like that. But in that case, you know, we picked a jury for two days just as we were about to open the case settled. So, you know, 90% or 95% of the cases are going to settle. Once you get into that courtroom, the real, the real offers will start coming in. Um, so you got to, you know, we got to get into the courtroom, but picking that jury that day, and this was about three weeks ago. I couldn't believe, like, I must because I haven't picked a jury in 18 months because of the pandemic. But um, it, it really brought home the fact that these jurors are so anti-plaintiff. It's unbelievable. Um, oh, everybody's a fraud. And, you know, and then, you know, I, you know, we have to ask questions. Oh, do I have to prove my client isn't a fraud before, like, you even consider, like, the evidence? Yeah, yeah. Like, why do you have that mindset? I don't know. You know, McDonald's hot coffee case, you know, I mean, that always comes up. Every juror should have to watch that. You know, like when you go to jury, into the, the jury room, they should show it while everybody's waiting. Because it's really, you know, the propaganda is, is everywhere. I mean, it's everywhere. We got billboards all over the place, you know, for these insurance companies, TV commercials, stadiums named after them, post-game shows, pre-game shows. Everything is insurance companies. And not only like Geico, let's pull Geico, for example. They have the caveman. They have the Mutembi Mutombo <laughs> uh, commercial, which is a good one, actually. They have the gecko lizard. I mean, they have three campaigns going at once. Liberty Mutual has the Ilimu Emu. They have the one with the, the kids standing in front of all, always in front of the Statue of Liberty in, New, in Jersey City, which is by me. Um, they are spending so much money on advertising. Like, and our rates are through the roof. And when somebody gets rear-ended and they're and you're picking a jury, they're mad at the plaintiff. They're not mad at the moron on his cell phone uh, driving down the highway. It's just mind-boggling to me. And they they oh the insurance of our rates are going to go up. Why should the rates go up? They spend so, they're making billions of dollars. So it's obviously a pretty lucrative business if you can spend that much on advertising. And the fact that the 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 general public when you pick a jury, is anti-lawsuit because they're worried about an insurance company who's billionaire is beyond. I, I just can't fathom it. I don't know how it got that way. And it's getting worse. We really need to start combating this stuff with you know propaganda that is pro-plaintiff, propaganda that the insurance company denials. Because anyone who had a deal with an insurance company will, will know how, how they are. You know, your car gets totaled. They want to give you three quarters of the value of it. Um, 
you know, you get injured and you have an underinsured motorist coverage. They fight you to the death. It's not like they treat you better because they're, you're their client. People think it's going to happen, and it doesn't. You know, they only get rich by not paying premiums, um, by not paying out cases despite collecting the premiums. You know, they always say, oh, you got to save me $5,000. i am like, yeah, right. I'm going to save you $5,000. How about you give my client the $5,000? So it means a lot more to them. Yeah, but you got to save me money on this one. I'm like, you insured this loser. You're going to pay all of the money. You know, like, are you kidding me? I'm not saving you one cent. So that's my attitude towards them. And that's what gets me a lot of trials because, you know, I refuse to negotiate with them when I'm correct, when I'm right. If you were... Uh, advising newer lawyers who are just starting out now, given all of the trials you've had and lessons you've learned, what would be um, kind of the the most two or three most important things you'd tell new lawyers? Get I know your your son is uh, working with you. Maybe you've given him this advice. Um, and by the way, I'm interested in knowing what it's like uh, having your son there at the firm. That must be pretty pretty nice for you. But um, Yeah, it's, it's really cool. And you know what about him? He's, um, he's not me. Nobody's me. I'm, uh, you know, I'll go into the courtroom and beat your head in with a sledgehammer. Like, that's my mentality. He's much – he's younger, obviously. He's, uh, he's 33 right now. He's tried six cases. He's won all six. But he's got a completely different style. He uses all of my tools – but he does it in his own way. A very, uh, he's very, he's a sweet kid. You know, he's got a very nice uh, demeanor and that's what works for him. And that's one thing I would definitely tell anybody. You have to be yourself. You know, I wrote this book and people come watch me lecture all the time. And I always tell them, write your own book. You know, I, I wrote this book only because I kind of came up with this idea. Um, but, you know, I, I read a lot of these books, The Reptile, you know, Keenan on Damages, uh, Rules of the I read all the trial guides, plaintiff's books, and I get some really good ideas out of them. But I don't, you know, and I'll steal things from time to time if they're good, but I don't try to be that person. I try to be myself. Um, I did try The Reptile three times and lost three trials in a row because I was trying to do something that I just didn't fit for me. But I, oh, well, I like the concept. I said, wow, this is a cool concept. Let me try this. I tried it and lost. And then I tried it again and lost. And I tried it again and lost. I said, you know, I'm not doing the reptile anymore. And it was funny because I did a seminar with David Ball, who wrote the reptile. And I went up to him and said, the reptile sucks. <laughs> I bet he appreciated that. Yeah. No, we were laughing. He goes, it has a long learning curve. I said, well, why don't you put that in the book? So I wouldn't lose three trials uh Oh, in a row over it, but um, and we we did have Keenan on the podcast. So you can go back and listen to his episode. He, I, I think he, he, I mean, the reptiles uh, book is is quite old now, and he's evolved quite a bit beyond where he was when that first came out with David uh, in the first version of of that. So he's, I think, he would be the first to acknowledge that he he himself continues to learn and improve his own approach to it over the, over the years. Um, but that's, yeah. you know, I think that's an important point that, um, that different things work for different people because the most important thing is to be authentic to yourself, but also the, the, the statement you made, write your own book is actually so insightful because what you're really saying is you have to think hard about these issues yourself. 
because that's ultimately, I think the teaching of all of these books and successful lawyers is that you've clearly given enormous time and thought and care to all of the issues that you confront when you go into a courtroom and wanting to, you know, get better at them and, uh, and, and do it, uh, in a way that works for you. And anybody who gives that time and thought to it is going to get better. Yeah. You can't just use a crutch that somebody else hands you. That's never going to probably work. Yeah. Well, one of the things like when I wrote my book, um, you know, I had, whenever I would try a case, I would always have like four or five books that, you know, on my, on my desk that I would reference like during the trial, I'm doing the prep. So once I wrote my book and I, I always say, look, there's all these books, but you don't need all those books anymore. This book has everything you need now because I incorporated a lot of things I had learned in those other books, put it in this book. And now I only need one book. I don't need any books anymore, but you know, I would only had need, would need one book now if I was 10 years ago and it would be the domino theory because it has everything. And I also felt like when you read all of those other books, they give you all the concepts, but they don't give you the content. In other words, they teach you how to do it, but they don't teach you what to do. And in my book, I put all the transcripts of all the different trials and all the doctors. And I, I tried to incorporate what I actually do. So you can read it as almost like a script. However, it's not what you say, it's how you say it, too. And I've watched some really good lawyers cross-examine doctors, and they're killing them. I mean, they're, like, really making great points, but there's no emphasis on it. They're talking like a monotone, and the doctor's answering the question monotone. If you didn't understand the medicine, you would not You would think that, that, that he's not doing any damage to the doctor. But in reality, he's crushing the guy, but the jury doesn't even know it because he's not, like, emphasizing those you know, the, just the, the inflection of his voice or anything to signal what I'm doing here. So I think that's it's really not what you say. It's how you say it. You have to, I mean, I'm not nasty with these doctors in the beginning. And many of them, even if I'm annihilating them, I won't, I won't get nasty with them unless they get nasty with me. You know, and some of them do, some of them don't. Some of them are real gentlemen. and I act like a gentleman. But when they get nasty and they start lying and I catch them in the lies and they start getting, screaming at me, I scream right back at them. I think the jury loves that stuff. You know, they they I, like the, – the jury kind of likes the blood sport of it, you think? Oh, yeah. yeah. And I, I take – I mean, it seems like one of your, your uh, principles is that you want to be entertaining too. You don't want to be boring. And I, I can't imagine in a courtroom you, you, you're boring. <laughs> like you or hate you, you're probably pretty fun to watch. Is that – something that is important to you to just kind of be entertaining to the jury? Just look, I'm, like I said, I'm passionate. I happen to be kind of a character. So uh, it turns out to be funny sometimes, but, uh, but uh, every, any judge, if I have a trial and he has a choice of two or three trials, he'll pick mine. He'll say, I'm taking your trial. They all fight over who gets my cases because I make it really, I, I make it entertaining. And the judge is like, that was the best trial I've ever seen. That was the funnest trial I've ever had. Like, I hear that a lot. Um, because, look, and other people, like, when I try a case, a lot of lawyers come watch me. So the galley is full of of, of lots of lawyers. So I, And I try to entertain them as well. You know, I'm teaching them, too. And when another interesting thing, when I do the dominoes in a, in a courtroom at the end, is I'm going to close. So everybody knows I'm going to do the domino theory. 
So the defense all knows you're going to do the domino by now, right? For the most part, yeah. So do they have an antidote to the dominoes? (laughs) Is there an anti-domino seminar that the defense lawyers are putting on somewhere that teaches them how to beat the Capozzi domino uh, closing? Well, they haven't come up with one yet. uh, They do file motions now. It's funny. They file a motion to bar me from doing it. Um, And has that ever worked? No, no, it don't work. It doesn't work. And it's that's why it's important that when you try the case, if you're going to start laying down dominoes, it better have happened in the courtroom. You can't just say, oh, the EMG, and there was no testimony about an EMG or no expert testimony about certain things. You have to make sure. And that's what I, how I defend the motions now. So look, this is what happened. He testified to that. She testified to that. This doctor said that. This doctor said this. So everything is, has been mentioned in the trial. So that's you know that's important, but I I, I consider that a given. If you're going to try the case, you got to talk about these things. But yeah, those are the kind of things they do. And they, it's um, if there is a way to defend it, I haven't heard it yet. Do they so, ever uh, ask you to use your dominoes and line them up and then monkey around with them, take one out or add one in or do something funny like that? No, never. I mean, I go last. You know, so in New Jersey, at least we go last. Um, so it's done. As soon as I'm done, they're done. They'll say something like, he's going to take out these dominoes and he's going to show you that this is what's set in motion. And then they don't say anything about it. Like they'll mention it. And then I'll say, yeah, you know, he told you I was going to do this. I am. And watch, watch, watch what happens. You know, like, um, so, you know, I, 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 I guess I don't know if there is a defense to it. It is what it is. Um, I'm sure, you know, and that's a great point. You could try to, if I were them, I would probably do something like that bring my own dominoes in. It's funny because law firms ask me for, because I was, I sell the dominoes themselves. Um, And the only reason I sell them is because they were so expensive to make the first set and everybody wanted to borrow them from me. And they would come to my house on a Sunday night and borrow my dominoes. And then I'd need them for my closing. I couldn't get them back. So uh, since if I want to get a set of dominoes, how do I go about finding those? We got a little bit of a problem there now. So we made like a thousand sets of them. We sold them all. Wow. Um, and we sold them because not, like I said, they're expensive if you make them individually, but if you make them in bulk, you know, we weren't doing it for a profit. We were just doing it to, you know, promote the, the cause, so to speak. But we ran out now. In fact, I only have, you know, a couple bags that I, I change them every trial. So they're constantly changing. So I need the, I need mine to, to, to do my own trials, but we, you know, it will be made in China. And I guess after COVID hit, we have trouble getting them, you know, the price they want like three times the price. And we're just kind of on hold right now, but um, we have sold them in every state in the United States and in Canada too. So wow. and, reg- and regularly get orders for them, but I just throw the checks in the drawer. Don't, you know, wait until if they come back, I'll, I'll contact these people. But, yeah, right now I just can't get them made at a reasonable price at least. But um, And I'm and I'm busy, man. I mean, I'm, well, you know, when they, the orders for these dominoes would come, and I'd be in my garage in the middle of the winter, like, folding them up because they come not, they come flat, and you got to fold them up. And then so it was a kind of a hassle for me to do this to make new money. I'm like, wasting my time, but. I would like uh, at some point, maybe trial guides, we've discussed them maybe uh, selling them. Because, look, when they look professional like that, they do look really nice. 
doesn't look like nobody's writing on them with hand, you know, magic markers and things. These things look good and they always fall perfectly. <laughs> so, uh, you know, ideally I'll get back to, to creating them again. Um, um, well, Ed, I, we really appreciate your coming on and talking about this and helping to educate uh, folks who are out there battling like you are every day against insurance companies trying to do right by their clients. Uh, if folks wanted to reach out or find you or have questions, are you open to hearing from people? And if so, uh, can you let them know how to how to get in touch? Sure. Um, I talk to lawyers around the country every day about either whether it be the domino theory or something else. So, uh, yeah, my, my email is ecaposi 15 at yahoo.com. That's my, you know, non-business one, which is the one I check more than anything. So, uh, so ecaposi E C A P O Z Z I one five at yahoo.com. That one five is for Thurman Munson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I remember him. <laughs> yep. Well, uh, best of luck to the uh, Giants, the Jets, and the, the Yankees, <laughs> but I can't say I'll be rooting for them. And um, folks are looking for the Domino Theory book. It's available on Trial Guides. Apparently, there's a new edition that just came out a month ago, so you should check that out um, and check us out again in a couple weeks for our, our next show. Uh, until then, uh, take care all. Have a good couple of weeks. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. For more information about today's guests and the topics discussed on the show, please visit our website at www.elevate.net. That's E-L-A-W-B-A-T-E.net, where you'll find guest profiles and show notes, and you can continue the conversation by joining our Facebook group. And if you enjoyed today's show, we hope that you'll subscribe and consider giving us a five-star review. So for now, keep on working to elevate your trial law practice, and we'll see you back again soon.